Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, it's part two of the Woodstock Back to the Garden 50th Anniversary Collection, featuring producers Andy Zachs and Brian Kehue. I see. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Rich. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm just checking rhino.com before we dive into the meat of this podcast today. Yet again, you know, you check rhino.com more than you check your voicemails. Well, that's the truth. If you're listening to this, you are a music head like we are, and there is so much great content there, videos. There's the album of the day. There are new releases that are coming out. There's contests like that new limited edition Monkey's Litho signed by artist Alex Ross. New contest posts all the time. If that one's gone, you'll find something else that strikes your fancy. When you go to rhino.com, you just realize the depth of the catalog and more importantly, or equally importantly, the creativity that it takes to put these sets together. For instance, the attention to detail that is included in Woodstock Back to the Garden, the 50th Anniversary Collection 38-disc box set. Watch the unboxing video. There has never been a box set like this one. Andy Zachs and Brian Kehue, the work that they did to put it together and leave it pristine. They did a great job on the audio. They didn't sanitize it. They kept it true to form, yet made it as accessible as any Woodstock audio has ever been before. And even though the 38-disc box set is a limited edition, there are three other SKUs so you can get your Woodstock on. There's a 10-CD set that features 162 tracks, and then there's a 3-CD set and 5-LP set that have the same track listing that include 42 tracks, and these are also available digitally. This podcast is actually based using the music from the 10 CD set. And we did something a little different in the spirit of Woodstock. This is a cinema verite. This is not an interview. This is Andy and Brian and music. And that's all it is. Shall explore. If you're 
Yeah, a lot of people in the years before Brian and I sort of arrived to deal with this stuff tried various heavy-handed attempts to sort of impose their will on that material. And in general, that approach fails. Like 99% of the time, that, that approach leads to disaster because these recordings are, they're imperfect and they're fragile. And you kind of have to respect that. You have to respect what they are. You know, just as you, you know, you can't turn an apple into an orange, you cannot turn the sound of Woodstock into the sound of, of some perfected, sculpted, perfectly rendered Steely Dan type record. It just, that can't happen. And if you try to do that, you're going to wind up in 9,000 different types of trouble. And, you know, and I think this is a kind of a really unique fossil record of something that happened over three days. There aren't a lot of things like this. And so that's one of the reasons that this is so interesting, is that we have this incredible opportunity to reconstruct this big, wide-scale event, which, for better or worse, you know, has come to embody a lot of how people think about what the late 60s was like and what the counterculture was. So, you know, in a sense, you really have to be careful with this stuff. This is, this is precious stuff, and you don't want to screw it up. Certainly in the last several years, there are things that we can do technically that we could never have done in the past, that nobody's ever been able to do, that have enabled us to, we've been able to kind of restore and kind of polish up and make listenable, fundamentally, a lot of stuff that was just fairly unpleasant to listen to. Sam, can you get the monitors on? Downstairs? Richard Bach, get back to Eddie Kramer in the sound truck. Richard Bach, get back to Eddie Kramer. Okay. Let's get high. Let's I guess get high. the reason we're here is music. So let's have some music, ladies and gentlemen. Quill. One. Several summers past the sun and ask the winter why. Dark and light can go and come. A poet leaves his song undone and no one knows a one. And what we found was some things cannot be replaced, some things cannot be fixed. There will be a flaw there. But it's really what happened. If there's a noisy piece of feedback, if there's a hum from a guitar amp, we can minimize it. And we often do turn it down, but we want it to also retain the reality of what happened. So it's not so obnoxious, it's not so ugly. We'll turn down the amp hum as much as possible, but there's still a version of it where it still needs to be there. And yet in modern technology, it's much easier for us to go and remove a hum, turn down feedback, decrease distortion. It doesn't usually make something perfect out of something flawed but it gets you into the realm where people don't wince as much and don't cringe. We're used to really good quality and perfection in so many things, but when you get into the aesthetic of Woodstock, the, the vibe that's presented, you don't mind that it's not super high fidelity, you don't mind that it's not super amazing bass or drum sounds. It just rocks, it sounds good, it's fun to listen to. And so, even listening back, on the other end of Woodstock now, going back through all these hundreds of hours of working on it, I'll hear something and say, oh, I wish that backing vocal was louder. And I know I mixed it, but why didn't I do that? Because it was already turned up so far that if we turned it up louder, you'd hear hum or hiss or even the drum set, which is louder on that certain track. So there's leakages between channels. We can't just eliminate what we don't want, but we minimize it where possible. And there's times when I wish 
They had recorded the drums for the first song on Santana, but they didn't. There are no drums recorded for the first song Santana plays. He's there bashing away, playing a great part, but you can only hear him from leakage on the other microphones. And by giving a little bit of top end to the bass track, that picks up the cymbals. A little bit of low end to the conga track that picks up his kick drum. And from doing that, I was able to mix a semblance of a drum track that feels like drums underneath the Santana first song performance. But when I hear it, I say, well, I wish I would turn up the drums a bit. Well, there are no drums, but we've got it up just enough to feel like something. And then the second song, the drums are in and you've got a good track. Ravi Shankar's performance was recorded on a multi-track, just like everybody else's performance at Woodstock. Unfortunately, that multi-track was taken from Woodstock by Ravi Shankar's producer, who was hell-bent on turning his Woodstock performance into a live album. In fact, he was so certain that he was going to do that, that you'll actually see, if you look at the original Woodstock program, you'll see an ad, you know, coming soon, this live record, Ravi Shankar, live at Woodstock. That's an ad that was that was printed up months before the show even mm -hmm. took place. So there was going to be a live at Woodstock, Ravi Shankar record, no matter what. The problem was that it rained all through Ravi Shankar's performance, which was great. I mean, it was, it's a heroic performance that he managed to get through this under, under some of the worst conditions anybody played under at Woodstock. But Shankar's producer took the multi-track, basically out of the sound truck, and took it back to L.A., and they attempted to make this live at Woodstock record, and Ravi Shankar was not wholly satisfied with his performance, so ultimately they just decided to re-record the entire performance in a studio in L.A., and that came out in 1970. I think it's the, like, one of the very first Woodstock releases, Ravi Shankar at the Woodstock Festival, which is a total lie. They used a bit of the crowd noise and a bit of the, the ambiance, but the music itself was basically all recreated in L.A. So after the fake live record came out, nobody seems to know what happened to the multi-track tape. And I have now spent like close to 15 years trying to figure out what happened to it, where it went. I have talked to everybody. When Ravi Shankar was still around, he was super helpful in terms of trying to help me figure out like where it could have gone. You know, people looked in his garage, people looked in his various storage spaces. No record company has any kind of documentation of it. It just vanished into the ether. So maybe we'll hear it one of these days. Maybe somebody will find it in a storage space, but I'm not holding my breath at this point. So the only source we had on Ravi Shankar was one of these mono reels of the, the soundboard feed from the PA. And some of those reels sound pretty good, and unfortunately this was not one of them. It sounds cruddy. There's all kinds of artifacts on it. It's just, it's, there's hiss, and, and it's just, it's not, it doesn't, it's not good. You know, we would have used it if we had to, and we did use a chunk of it 10 years ago on our 40th anniversary package, but we didn't have to this time. Brian has a crazy friend, crazy like a fox. Yeah. His name is James Clark. He's an engineer at Abbey Road. He used to be a physicist, and he spent the last several years working on a really radical new process that basically allowed us to kind of recover and recreate, well, not recreate, reconstruct the Shankar performance. Brian, Brian, you can speak to this much mm -hmm. better than I can. Yeah. So at Abbey Road Studios in London, famous home of the Beatles and Pink Floyd and others, they're very up on modern technology, and they've created a system, a custom program, that can analyze musical tracks and separate out the components. 
If you had a single drum channel, a drum track, like we've been dealing with in Woodstock, you could pull out the kick drum, separate from the snare drum, and give them each separate channels. But in his world, he works on Beatles tracks, for example, taking two guitars combined together, separating them into two tracks so that they can be panned or treated differently in the studio in a mix. He's been doing this for the Beatles, David Bowie, uh, Rolling Stones, and now us for the Woodstock Project. We sent over the files of the single-channel Shankar mix and said, basically, Ravi had three instruments. The sitar is his main instrument. He's got a tambura, or tanpura, some people call it, which is a drone instrument. Also strings, but it just goes over and over again. A nice, beautiful drone. And to one side of him was sitting a tabla player, the hand drums that you hear in traditional Indian music. And you can see them very clearly positioned in some of the pictures and films of them. So what we asked him to do was to give us those three channels separated. He takes a version of each instrument, a section where the sitar plays by itself, teaches the computer what that sounds like, the registers, the speed of it, the shape of the notes, and that's different than the drums, which the tablas have a different shape, a different frequency range, a different kind of attack to it. And then also the tempura, which drones away, also strings, but it's different range and different buzziness than the sitar. So he sent us back individual tracks. Now, none of them are perfect, but it's really cool because we now have able to take one instrument, put it to one side, one to the other, and one to the middle, and it sounds like a beautiful stereo mix of what they played on stage, taken from the original mono source. So this is great technology, something that didn't exist just a few years ago, yeah. and we're able to use it to save something. We have not added any sounds, we've not added any frequencies, we didn't use any tricks like a reverb or a delay. We used the original audio source and created three tracks that we now could mix in stereo. other things where technology had really, really allowed us the possibility to do things that just would have seemed completely like magic a few years ago. Blood, Sweat and Tears, because they had limited track space, they have a lot of horns in the band, all the horns are confined to two tracks of the six tracks of available audio during the performance. And due to, who knows, bad monitoring, humidity, there's all kinds of things that can make things go wrong, but the horns generally are out of tune throughout the entire Blood, Sweat and Tears performance, and it's not a comfortable thing to listen to. It just doesn't sound very good. And that's the reason why that performance has barely circulated over the years. It's not in the movie. It's not It's not really anywhere. We used one track from it that had a slightly better sound on our 40th anniversary package, but that's it. That's the only legitimately released song from that performance until now. So I think at first we thought that the demixing process at Abbey Road would, would be the thing that would, that would really help us work with this. But actually, as it turned out, I mean, it was, it was, the, it was developments in polyphonic tuning that, that were what really allowed us to fix this. Is that, that's right, yeah. isn't it? Many people have heard about auto-tune, and there's a version of it which is not automatic where you're choosing pitches, dialing things in to go. The problem with Blood, Sweat, and Tears is they're such a great live group, especially in that period. It's just literally their iconic era, that album tour, and they were a cracking live band. But if the tuning is slightly off on the trumpet and slightly off on the, it just sounds weak and poor. And they weren't that group. And honestly, we do try to keep things authentic, but in this case, they didn't want to have it out. 
they didn't want it released. And it, it is an issue to listen and enjoy something. So without overcorrecting something, we were able to take a track that had, let's say, two horns on it and individually tune each horn, not to laser sharpness of perfection, but just to a, a normal range where they sound good together and then restore it to a performance that not only sounds good, it sounds great. They're an incredible improvement. And we know they played well. We know they did well. It's just a slight setting on the trombone register and the tuning amount on the trumpet would put them out. So had they done a little bit better tuning, this is the performance you would have had. They're incredible. And it's actually well worth doing. The same way we might turn down a vocal that's too loud, we might fade out a guitar that's doing some feedback. We don't mind helping it to make a good listening experience, but we're not trying to do something completely artificial right. to make it what it wasn't. Like medicine, baby, you're good for me. Like honey, darling, yeah, I know you're sweet to me. Each passing day brings us much closer together. The love you give me, darling, just gets better and better. That's why I'm in love for you. Keep on growing. Yeah, we have been able to kind of reclaim that performance from near unlistenability in certain cases is extraordinary. And Brian's right. They were a great, serious live band. They kind of, you know, people have kind of forgotten that they were that they were that kind of band, but they really were. And they were at their commercial peak in 1969. They were one of the most commercially successful acts of yeah. 69. So Woodstock actually catches them right at their at their big peak. And the audience are really psyched to hear them come on. And the energy of it is fantastic. And God, they could really play. I mean, these were serious guys playing, playing like it's tough stuff. There's some complicated charts. Like everybody in that band is a virtuoso of sorts, but it's really ferocious. And it's something that I wouldn't really have expected having spent the last like umpteen years listening to this kind of, you know, sad sort of like unsatisfactory version of the material that we had. I would never have kind of dreamed that there was this, this kind of this powerhouse lurking underneath once we had just basically managed to nudge the horns into alignment, you could really hear, and especially in this new mix that Brian's done, once we got those horns aligned, like, yeah, it's a ferocious performance. I think this may surprise people when they hear it. You're gonna need a lawyer when you're in a fix. Someone got to pay up your friends at politics. Probably you love is something that you just can't buy. Hold up to the truth, girl, your lover's gone home. Smiling faces bring you flowers. You can line up a planet. You can watch them grow flowers. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what was this, how did it look, how did it sound, what should it sound like, what's the right approach. And, you know, something from 1969 shouldn't sound like something from 2019. That that you know, those, those two things are kind of antithetical in a sense. So, and it's, that's one of the ways that it's really easy to go wrong with this stuff is by imposing like, you know, latter day effects and latter day stuff. So even when we've kind of worked with this stuff, I think we've, we've tried to keep it well within the range of the, the 1969-iness of this rather than some latter day thing. There's one thing that I keep hearing pieces about. And there's one thing I can ask you and I can ask you personally or any other way, there is a bit of acid sickness going around. There's somebody out there. There's something. You don't need that. Let's not pass anything to anybody else tonight. Let's just hang together. 
Anything that could be dangerous, let's just forget about it. Let's just make the festival, not the other stuff. With all of this, ain't nothing can make you high as this. So there are all kinds of problems to solve with Woodstock. I mean, enigmas, puzzles, jigsaw, and otherwise. So uh, not long ago, we realized that there's a track in the Paul Butterfield performance that kind of a tough instrumental track, or what had seemed like a tough instrumental track, where there was actually a, a totally buried vocal that somehow I had just kind of thought like, well, you can kind of hear him off. I guess that's, I guess that's all there is. And then I compared it to the mono reel that we had of that performance, and like, I realized like, oh, there's a loud, clear, full-on, fully developed lead vocal on this performance that, that is nowhere in evidence other than via leakage on the multi-track. Oh, great. So the multi-track had basically like the full instrumental track. The mono track was missing. It had the vocal, but, it, but for some reason the horns and the guitar parts didn't show up on the... Yeah, on the mono a, reel, yeah. weirdly. Two different defective recordings. And 10 years ago, we would have been kind of stuck. We could have maybe tried to align them, but it would have been like a one in a million shot. It would have been like playing ring toss at a carnival, trying to get the thing around the milk bottle. You could toss and toss and toss, trying to get the various, the vocal aligned with the instrumental in the hope that you might be able to sync it up properly to kind of use the elements from both tapes. But it probably wouldn't have worked. And when you're out of phase, when you're out of sync, you know, when you've got those elements and they're not perfectly aligned, you get horrible sound artifacts that really are unpleasant. This, you get these kind of whooshy phasing effects that there would have been no point. And we couldn't have, there's, there's nothing we could have done with that 10 years ago. But I mean, quite recently, there's some, some new software developments that have allowed Brian to basically fix things like this, remarkably enough. Yeah, think of at least three major vocal performances that were not recorded. There's Janis Joplin, there's Tim Harden, both doing important. Janis's first song in her set, Tim Harden doing If I Were a Carpenter, his biggest track, and there's no vocal track recorded from Woodstock. And same with this piece, Paul Butterfield, that we found that there's no lead vocal. It's a really big thing to miss, especially in someone like Janis Joplin who just walked on stage. You can hear she's screaming and you can hear the PA system is blasting it, but it's not recorded on tape. They've not plugged in the microphone, they mispatched something somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think that these are rare chances where we use the modern technology to be able to play with it, line it up as close as possible to the right waveforms as it would have been. You've got an actual machine on the truck rolling with motors, using ball bearings and everything. It's not perfect. And another machine out in the field recording the PA system. A different machine with also different power, different motors running, and they're definitely not synchronized together. So it's like trying to jump between one train to another as they're going, really to try to sync them up so that they stay in all the way through. Because even if Janice is not singing, you're hearing the horn parts and the drum parts in the PA system that I've already got on the multi-track. I can't get rid of it. So we're using what we have to try to blend it, and we were able to get really good results. The only difference being, and I don't think most people would ever notice it, is the sound quality is different from a microphone recorded on the truck on a microphone channel versus a microphone going through the PA system. Well, you keep... 
One of the things that's kept me working for Warner Brothers and Rhino Records, and specifically, is that I have a tendency towards traditional recording. I've kept all and bought up a lot of old machines, outboard equipment. The console here is from the 70s. I just like the way it sounds. I like the way it's used. Uh, many people revere it, and it is quite valuable sometimes. But I was always resistant towards the digital computer side of things for so many years. But in that way, I also found a unique market, which is working with old original tapes, understanding them, how tape machines are kept and maintained and restored and aligned. And so the technical side of it is very comfortable to me. I live in a 1969 world very comfortably. So pulling out tapes, threading them, editing, things like that is very easy for me um, and very traditional. It's an old way of working. Very few people do it, but it's a very specialized set of traits. That's the way I began, and I, of course, use computers now as we do, too, for what it's good for. Most of the mixes on the Woodstock were done from the tape machine through the console, and we used outboard equipment such as equalizers, compressors, various processors people always used to use to get the sound. That's how the original Woodstock albums were done. That's how the film was done. We wanted to retain a lot of that feel, a lot of that vibe, and it is slightly different. You can do a very close version with the computer, with software, but we preferred to work that way when traditional, and I do think it sounds better. Hello, people. Just a little pause here. I'd like to tell you something. My name's Country Joe. I just want to tell you something about, you know, all us people from the Bay Area, we're real LSD freaks. We take a lot of LSD. We've taken a lot of LSD. We know what LSD is. But I'll tell you one thing, the stuff that they're passing out here today uh, may or may not be LSD, but there's a chance that you won't have a very good trip. Now what you're supposed to do after you know that is you're supposed to stop taking it. Now if you've taken it already, don't worry because you're not poisoned and you won't die. But if you haven't taken it, I would recommend that you don't take it. And just listen to the music and wait till you can get some stuff that you know is good if that's your inclination. That's called common sense. Right on. Country common sense from us folks out in the Bay City. We could have us a high I think most people will be familiar with the visual side of it. If you remember film, The Wizard of Oz, Citizen Kane, even Star Wars, that's the look of film, and it has a certain quality to it. And then things on video have a different look, things you've seen from television. And more and more they're meeting in the middle, they have some qualities that are the same, that are both good. But really, if you want to get difficult and fixated on something, you go into Photoshop and adjust the pixels on a photograph. You can adjust what was done before. But to me, it's not as bold and not as exciting as capturing a real photograph on film, developing it, printing it, that has a certain way of working that looks pretty cool. And if you see original photographers work, they didn't have a lot of options, but their work is powerful. So I find that to be the same case with audio. We're limited to a few options of channels. We don't have a million choices, and yet you make good choices because you're looking at a whole picture. Oh, 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 oh. That's gone, yeah, stone, sir. 
so some of the issues we ran into where there's hums and buzzes, a noisy guitar pedal, anything that might be kind of a negative sound is actually mollified, brought down a little bit in aggravation and in tone by going onto tape, which is kind of a soothing, smoothing process. The console itself warms things up and doesn't kind of release nastiness, it tames it down a bit. So that helps us already, but if you've got something nice, like a beautiful vocal or a great bass sound, a fantastic drummer, it will actually enhance the goodness of what they've already brought to you. The computer is best for fixing problems. It's not necessarily the best workflow. It's not the best for even getting the forest for the trees. You tend to get bogged down in little details. Every little squeak and scrape, you want to adjust it because you can quote unquote make it better. But think of all the things that existed before then, like the Beatles, Bob Marley, Led Zeppelin, James Brown, etc. that never had that. And they there are no problems bothering you. The goodness is so good. And part of that is their performance, the equipment they captured with it. But anyone who's ever worked in an old studio or worked with a console, when you're actually moving the channels together, you're adjusting this one and that one almost by feel, as a musician does, as you hear it, you're responding to it. The same way players in a jazz group respond to each other. When I hear the drums doing something, I may duck the vocal a bit, and it's sort of instantaneous and automatic, and I'll never do it again the same way the next time. And you occasionally catch a magic performance, just like an actor would on stage or a performer would in their performance. You get some that are just really have it right. You could tweak something else, but you'd probably never get the same thing. So we find a great one and we like to keep it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much. We've got one little last trip we'd like to lay on you, if it's at all possible. There's couple of packages of garbage bags here. If on your way out, you wouldn't mind taking one, filling it up and leaving it where you fill it, that certainly would be appreciated. Anything you can do to give us a hand to leave this area somewhat the way we found it. I don't think it'll ever be quite the same. But somewhat the way we found it certainly would be appreciated. It's been a delight seeing you. May we wish you anything that the person next to you wishes for you. Good wishes, good day, and a good life. Thank you. It was hard enough to get all of that in a two-part podcast, but the fact of the matter is that people can get a three-CD or a 10-CD set to go even deeper. That's right. Woodstock Back to the Garden 50th Anniversary Collection is available now on a 10-CD set that has 162 tracks. So many of them never released before that set came out, and it is the first set that has live music from every performer. Before this... The Dead's music was never released. They didn't want that release before. They thought it was a subpar performance, but in hindsight, it's super cool to listen to it. If if you're a music fan and you liked Woodstock and you've liked everything you've heard before, you're going to need to sink your teeth into this because there are so many morsels for you to discover. 
Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.